if you um, are just now joining us, um, we have been going through the Gospel of John, and we just um, hit John chapter 5 a couple weeks ago before we uh, had a uh, missed church for the past few weeks because of snow. Uh, we're in John 5, so I encourage you to turn, turn to John 5, and uh, we're going to go there uh, this morning. Um, we were finally starting John back up, so we took a break over of the new year and had a few weeks there. We finally got back into it, and then it got slowed down again, so it's hard to get some momentum going, um, but hopefully we'll be able to do that here here soon. So this morning, really my goal, just want to do a couple things this morning. I, I want to review where we are in the Gospel of John. I want to review what we saw last time in this story in John 5, and then I also want to sort of finish up where we left off last time. So we, we did this first story in John 5, the healing at this pool on the Sabbath. And the last few verses are, are very significant, 17 through 18. Um, and we're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking those as well this morning. And really the purpose is just to set the stage now for the next week um, when we dive in into just, my goodness, just a really rich section of the Gospel of John. Um, on, uh, on the nature of Jesus as the Son of God. Um, really looking forward to that. So this morning we're just going to do a little bit of summary, review, and, uh, and finishing up um, where we were last time. We've been saying a number of times that chapters 1 through 4 of the Gospel of John are really the first major section of this Gospel. Um, they're, they're sort of bookended by these two signs. Jesus travels to Cana, performs a sign, changing water into wine. And then we get these discourses of, you know, with Jesus and Nicodemus and the woman at the Samaritan well. And then he travels back up to Cana, forms another sign. It sort of forms an inclusio around these chapters and is one unit. Uh, we, we learn these, some of these major themes of the gospel. Um, we talked about those last time. The identity of the Messiah. Just what kind of Messiah is he going to be? What is his work going to be? He's um, teaching us the primary purpose of his coming, which is to provide the new birth eternal life, um, and that is defined in chapter 3 as the purification from sin and the transformation of your being, your inner being, by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's come for. These chapters also highlight the ultimate goal, the ultimate ends of his coming. So Jesus came, and he died on the cross, not only that you can have eternal life through faith, but that is an end to something else. Do you remember what it was? Is what? Ends to... It means to the end of the Father's worship. Jesus came not only so that we could be forgiven of our sins, but he came in order to create a new covenant community, the church, the people who now are able to worship God with the kind of worship God has always desired in the Old Testament. Jesus is the new temple, the new access point to God, and he changes, transforms the people um, to be able to worship the Father. That's what chapters 1 through 4 are all about. And then we come to this next major section of the gospel, chapters 5 through 12. Um, and in these chapters, one of the main points is the escalating opposition to Jesus. So the first four chapters, there was unbelief in Jesus, but now, beginning with this very first story in chapter 5, we see people actively trying to put Jesus to death. Um, they, they hate him. They want him dead. Um, and the purpose of these chapters is just to tell us why. Why is that the case? If he is truly the Messiah, why would people want him dead so bad? Chapter 3 told us the ultimate reason. Men love darkness and they hate light 
right? That's the fundamental reason for unbelief, but these chapters are going to give us the specific reasons. What specifically was it about Jesus that they, um, that they hated? They want him to die for. These chapters are also, chapters 5 through 12, going to give us the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, as one who is equal with the Father, and who even claims titles for himself like, I am, I am who I am, the, the very name of God. Um, so these very, very rich chapters um, that we're going to see in the next few weeks. And last time we were together, I told you, we looked at this first story, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. It's this third messianic sign that Jesus performs. And he goes to this public pool in which there's a multitude of invalids. There's sick, lame, paralyzed, blind, all kinds of um, um, invalids around this, around this pool. And he finds there a man who's been in this condition. It seems that he's lame uh, for 38 years. Most of his life, in other words, this man has been there. And Jesus intentionally picks him out of all the others. And the reason that man is there, the reason that all these people are there, there's a lot of people gathered at this pool, is there seems to be this superstition going on at this time that an angel of the Lord would come down, stir the waters, and the first person into the water would immediately receive healing. Um, and uh, it's most likely a superstition. We, we defended that last time when we were in the story. Um, but Jesus comes to this man. This man does not know who Jesus is. This man does not have any faith in Jesus. This man is only looking to the water, or the superstition, to get healing. And Jesus immediately commands him, take up your bed and walk. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And the man is instantaneously healed uh, from the disease of 38 years. So you're wondering, okay, it's a, it's a nice story of this miracle and this healing, but, but what is the point? So what? Okay. Um, Jesus' actions and the power of this word and the story um, are, are important. They're going to be explained in the coming chapters. Um, and, and really, that's the pattern. So you think of this sign here, and then think of chapter 6. He feeds the 5,000. And then in chapter 9, he heals the man born blind. Each one, we get a sign, and then it's followed by this teaching of Christ that explains the purpose of the sign. So he does the sign, and the, the, the purpose is coming um, ahead of us in this, in this chapter. But we did say last time, um, give you one of the main points of the sign. Do you remember what it was? So he heals a lame man. Why is that so significant in light of Old Testament background? What, what is the purpose of that? that miracle. Remember? We reveal something about his identity. The Messiah. Yeah, he's the Messiah. It's good. It's good. Isaiah 50, uh, 35, 6 says, Then the lame man will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. So in that passage in Isaiah, it's looking forward to the time when God would restore his creation. So we've been learning in Ecclesiastes about the, the predominance of the fall, but the curse affects everything uh, in creation and in our, in our lives. And the, the expectation of the Old Testament, the, the final goal of God's promises, is that the day is coming when God will remove the curse and transform this creation into a perfect Eden-like paradise um, as at the very beginning. And Jesus' miracles are meant to declare that that age has decisively begun, that the new creation and the coming of Christ has already begun. 
the Messiah has arrived onto the scene to accomplish God's purposes and bring in his kingdom. So you can think of the signs and the miracles of Christ almost as though it's the burstings in of the age to come into the present age, right? So Jesus is healing, he's bringing, uh, making lame people walk and raising the dead, doing these things, all things that are going to characterize the new creation, the coming creation. And the point is that in Christ, as he's doing these signs, it's as though the future is bursting into the present um, as he is healing these people. It's meant to show that he's the one that's going to do it. He's the one that's going to bring about God's promises. He's the one that's going to restore the creation in which all of it is like, like this, restored and perfect again. But there's something very significant about this story uh, that we need to pay attention to. Do you remember what it was? How many people did Jesus heal? There's one. How many people are at this pool? There's possibly hundreds of people at this pool. That's very significant. Um, Jesus comes and he heals one. And then he intentionally fades into the background. There's this crowd going on. This man doesn't even know who Jesus is. He doesn't even find out who Jesus is. He heals him and he fades away. Why? Why would he, why would he do that? Do you remember what we said last time? That's very significant. Um, if we're talking about, well, Jesus is the one to bring the new creation. He's the one to restore um, God's purposes. He's the promised Messiah. And here he is. He's healing this man. But just one? Not the, not the whole crowd? Not the hundreds that are there? And he fades away? What do you think? What was the, what was the purpose of that we had said? Well, I know we had mentioned it showing his authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, hand in hand with that is that the kingdom is not come yet. It's foreshadowing his death and his time on earth. It's good. But it has not come to fullness. It's good. Yep. Excellent. Excellent. Look. So look at verse 13. Just so we can see how this is, uh, is working out. Exactly, exactly right. What Bobby said. It says, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So this place is packed full of lame, sick people. Jesus heals him, and immediately he sort of fades back into the crowd. In other words, Jesus does not want to be identified by the crowd as a miracle worker. Over and over again in this gospel, people miss Jesus' signs as though his primary purpose for coming is the inauguration of the kingdom, of the the restoration of creation, of healings widespread, and of feedings widespread. Um, He doesn't want to be bombarded by a crowd desperate for physical healing. All these people are desperate for physical healing, right? That's why they're there. And Jesus doesn't want to be identified as that. Why? It goes back to what Bobby was saying. It's because before Jesus as Messiah will recreate the world and will remove the curse, before he does that, There is something more important that must be dealt with first. It's very significant. He didn't come to simply cure diseases. One day he will. That's not the main reason for his first coming. Rather, the miracles give us small glimpses of what he will do. They authenticate his person, saying he is the one that's going to do that. But they are there in order to point Jesus to people to Jesus and what he would provide. So look at verse 14 now. What is that? What is the proper response to his signs? 
Look at verse 14. It says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple, the man that he had healed, and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And we said last time that, it, that this verse um, seems to imply that this man's sickness was the result of his sin. Now, it's true that not all sickness and disease and suffering is the result of sin. So think of chapter 9, the man born blind. The disciples said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither one of them, but it was for the glory of God. So not all suffering and sickness is the result of a specific sin in your life. But sometimes it is. Sometimes there are consequences and results of sin. And that seems to be what's going on in this passage this man's sin in some way had led to poor decisions in his life, whatever it might be. And so this, this suffering that, that he's experienced for these 38 years. Um, if that's the case, we also noted last time that it highlights that Jesus chose him, not just because of how long his sickness endured, but because of how unworthy he was. Um, Jesus has come to lavish grace and redemption on unworthy sinners who've destroyed their lives. Um, he seeks this one man out, so gracious of him. But look what he says, sin no longer, lest something worse happens to you. What could be worse than 38 years of being paralyzed? What do you think? Eternal <laughs> suffering. That's it. Eternal suffering. And that, that is exactly where this passage goes, as we'll see next week. It's where... Um, Jesus takes the conversation. Eternal judgment is coming. So the idea is just as sin in his life has led to this kind of physical suffering, so sin will lead to eternal suffering. That's what Jesus means. Jesus declares this man, sin no more. The idea is cease from your life of sin. It doesn't mean total perfection. It just means turn. Cease from being devoted to your sin. Um, it is the same as a call to repentance. In other words, repentance of one's life of sin and turning to Christ is the proper response to his signs. And all through John, people respond the totally other way, right? They see his signs and they welcome Jesus. Great, this is awesome. Sign worker, give us the, the blessings of the new creation now so we don't have to deal with our sin. That's how a natural man always responds to Christ. As Messiah, he would be God's agent in the new creation and remove the curse, but this would not begin by the removal of physical suffering. Rather, through Christ's person and cross work, the age to come, the new creation, bursts into the present primarily in the form of transformed lives. That's the point. So as the Messiah, he's bringing the new creation now in the form of a transformed life, the new birth. You'd be forgiven of your sin and totally transformed from a life devoted to sin. So we're going to unpack this here in just this one minute. Some, some implications for us. Um, the main implication of Christ's first coming is the creation of a new people. A people born again. A people who possess eternal life. So Jesus told Nicodemus, right? Unless you are born again, unless you experience eternal life now, you will not enter the kingdom and experience eternal life then. In other words, eternal life is not just life that ex continues forever. Well, we often think eternal life just means it's perpetual, it's not ending. 
That's certainly true. But in John, the idea of eternal life is a kind of life. It's the kind of life that's going to characterize the kingdom, the age to come. The idea is that you must experience that kind of life now. New life, a life alive towards God, not devoted to sin now. Transformed by the Spirit, totally cleansed now. Or you're not going to experience it in the kingdom. That's exactly what's going on here. You say, well, Michael, where do you see that in our passage? Look down to verse 24, chapter 5, verse 24. We're going to really unpack this next week. Um, just give you a, a foretaste. Um, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has, that's present tense, has eternal life. That's new spiritual life, regeneration. He does not come into judgment. There's the main issue. But has already passed from death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. But look at this. And is now here. It's already here in some form. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. In other words, resurrection is coming, but it's already begun in the form of spiritual resurrection from the dead as people respond to the gospel. That's how the age to come has already begun. Now that's very, very significant for the gospel of John and for, and for us today. So often in the world, even among believers, we start to think that our biggest problems are the difficulties of life and the evils that go on around us in a daily basis. Um, so let me just give you one example. Um, it's been much in the uh, mainstream evangelical press recently, and that is the increasing popularity of saying that the gospel must not only be about a proclamation of repentance from sin and the forgiveness that, that's available in Christ, but that the gospel includes bringing new creation realities to pass in our societies, in our social structures. Things like social justice and um, reconstructing societies and liberating people from oppression now become included in the gospel. That is very significant and it's very dangerous. And that is exactly what John is going after, that kind of attitude. Why? First thing I want to say is there's certainly evil in the world. And we should certainly be concerned about evil in the world. None of us should say it doesn't matter. None of us should belittle it and sweep it under the rug. We should be concerned about injustice if it's biblically defined. And that's a whole other issue, um, defining biblical justice. But it's not a part of the gospel, and it's not a part of the mission of the church. Okay? Jesus tells us that our biggest problem is sin and the coming judgment. And our main priority in this life is to cease from a life of sin, whether that's in your conversion or that's progressively in your Christian life. That's your main priority. And it is to proclaim this good news and a call of repentance to others because judgment is coming on everybody, those who have been oppressed and those who have not been oppressed. And the world obviously doesn't like this message. It's not too concerned about these things, right? It's concerned about what? It's concerned about my life, my, my here and now, my, uh, you know, I want to be healthy, I want to be wealthy, I want to, you know, live a happy life. Again, nothing 
wrong with those things, just not the main reason Christ came. Again, you see it all over the place in John. And so the temptation is to add to the message of the gospel the world's agendas, what the world thinks is important, what the world thinks is acceptable. But not, but that um, just harms the gospel message. I mean, can, can you just imagine? So think of the feeding of the 5,000. Remember what happened there? Flip over with me. Chapter 6. Jesus has just fed these people, and they're excited. They, they realize a sign has happened, okay? He feeds them. They see the few loaves of bread and the couple fish, and everybody's full. And they're excited. And they're ready to confess he's the Messiah. Wow, this is it. Look at verse 14 of chapter 6. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet, the coming one, who is to come into the world. This heat is great. The kingdom's coming. Verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Christ came to be king, but not that kind of king. What did he do? He withdrew again into the mountain by himself. Exactly what he did in chapter 5. He withdraws. He did not come for that. So can you imagine if Jesus would have just given in to their demands? They came back the next day and they wanted breakfast. Great, Jesus. How about you make some more of that bread? This is great. We can start the kingdom now. Um, he gives in to their demands. Um, they would never have heard about the bread of life, right? They would never have even come to realize their need of the bread of life. And at the very end of chapter 6, what happens? Tons of his disciples leave him. Why? Because that's not the kind of Messiah they they didn't want a Messiah to deal with their sin. They wanted a Messiah to fix their society, fix their life, satisfy their fleshly desires and cravings. So when we mix the gospel with these other things, it distracts the main emphasis of the gospel, which is not that you are a victim, but that you're accountable to God for your own sin. Later in this gospel, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. The main emphasis of the social gospel is not that, but is that you're a victim. Are there victims out there? There, there? there are. But if that is the main focus, you're going to miss the gospel because your main problem, no matter what people have done to you, is that you are in danger of judgment. You're not a victim. You will die in your sin unless you repent. That's the call of the detracts the, the focus away from the gospel, and it detracts the focus away from what Christ will do when he returns. This is not the age of the restoration of creation. This is the age of the calling to repentance and the beginning of new creation in spiritual ways in the church. So, um, any questions or, or comments on that? Um, that's sort of the first um, nuance, the first half of this story, first main point that this story is emphasizing is that the main purpose Christ has come uh, is to create a new covenant people. Not to bring all of the new creation to pass. That's coming. Christ will reign as king, and justice will flow like the rivers, the prophets say. That hasn't started yet. The kingdom has begun in different ways, spiritual ways, transformation of a people in the church. That's where it's experienced primarily. Any questions, comments on that? Can we move on? Yes, Bobby. I was just going to say, I think the point you made is so important because many churches get sidetracked um, with 
potentially good intentions of yeah. helping the community, you know, alleviating the poor, mercy missions, things like yep. that. Um, but I've seen that that ends up actually detracting from Christ. Yes. It becomes the mission of the church. Mm -hmm. And then Christ gets kind of pushed by the wayside, yep. even if they start with good intentions. Yep. I mean, you comment on, on that a little bit? Mm -hmm. or, yeah, um, it's the same problem as the prosperity gospel. It really is. It's the same issue. Will there be health, wealth, and prosperity? There will in the kingdom. Like, it's coming. The issue is timing. Like, we want that now because we believe that's our greatest problem. And Christ has come to deal with our biggest problem, which is our rebellion against him and the wrath and judgment of God on the, on the world. And, um, and the church subtly believes the lies of the world. Just like in the Gospel of John, they're all about the signs. It's great. Give us these signs. That's not the purpose he came. So it's the prosperity gospel. It's this. It's, it's all these other things that, that, that people just are convinced that's our greatest need. Yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just saying it's all about having an eternal perspective rather than a worldly perspective. Yep. Yeah. yep. Yeah, perspective is just a big part of it. Yep. Excellent. So, can you have some? Um, yeah, I was just going to ask. I'm trying to understand how, you know, how it, this fits in with, like, you know, the command to take care of what is an orphan. Yes. And, of course, you know, the Bible says to, mm -hmm. you know, do things like that. And, yeah. You know, the. Um, Stephen and them taking care of mm -hmm. the women in the church. And I, you know, I'm just trying to fit everything. No, that's excellent. That's a very important thing to, to pull out. And um, uh, let me just say it really quickly. I might, it might be good just to do a whole uh, lesson. If you were here when we did Proverbs, we talked a, a, quite a bit about justice. We caught, talked a bit about money and, and how we use it, giving to the poor and things like that. And when you come to the New Testament, it's really interesting that you see these commands to, to sell what you have and give to the poor, give to the needy. The idea is not so that you can sort of reconstruct society now to bring, uh, you know, equity and, and all in society. Certainly we want that. And, and I mean, if you look at church history, where the gospel goes, societies improve. That's just not the mission of the church. The commands of Christ to do those things are almost universally applied to life in the in church. church. In the it's almost universally. I mean, you look at the book of Acts. Well, why? It's because the church is the first fruits of the new covenant, of the new creation on earth. You want to experience the new creation? You want to experience new creation realities? It happens where? In the church. It doesn't mean you don't do good things to other people. Do good to all men, but especially the houses of faith. Um, and so, we, yeah, we care about the poor. We care about suffering. It's just not the mission of the church to create uh, a society, to, to, to reorder society, to, to redistribute wealth and create fairness within society. Certainly we long for that. Certainly we want to help people. It's not what we're about. And if that becomes what we're about, the gospel suffers. Mm -hmm. um, but we love people. I mean, that's the overflow of being loved by God is loving others um, and caring for others. But the primary way we show that is within the church. And then it overflows from there society runs but it's an excellent question and you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater um, for sure um, but it's good yeah the order really yes. matters right because the gospel is the thing that must be proclaimed and, and that's the one that people have to do yeah. business with if we go the other way you know we the world around us has 
our God is our stomach, yep. and then there was our appetites, our desires, our needs, and it's good. And the gospel is our greatest need. And so yeah, we should go back to the gospel community. That's where the, yeah. that work should should occur primarily. But if we appeal to people on the basis of their needs, yep. you know, we're, we're not helping them yep. eternally. Yeah, exactly right. I, I just want to, I think I've recommended it before. Don MacArthur did, I think it was a four-part series on social justice. It was back in 2018. It is phenomenal. He preaches from Ezekiel 18. Um, massive passage about justice. and But the danger is what we're sort of talking about here of when we make that the primary issue, how it really not only distracts from the gospel, it distorts from the gospel. Um, so highly recommend it. Just, just search you know, MacArthur sermons social justice and it is phenomenal um, but uh, I will leave that I will leave that there uh, and maybe we could tackle it in the future but the primary point here is the purpose of Christ's coming the purpose of his first coming is for the creation of a new people spiritually recreated in the church and then the other things are coming he does a sign to say hey I'm the one that's going to make it happen it's not the primary purpose though of my first coming well, there's a second main point in this story, which also is going to be fleshed out um, in the passages ahead. And that is the identity of Jesus. So he's not just the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Now, what does that mean? Um, you'll notice here that a, a big thing that's going on in this story is that the Jewish leadership accuses Jesus of violating the Sabbath. He does this thing on the Sabbath. And you're probably wondering, Jesus you got six other days in the week you could do these signs. Why are you doing this on the Sabbath? But he intentionally picks the Sabbath in order to reveal something about his person, about his character, who he is. Um, and we get these, uh, the, sort of the main point in verses 16 through 18 um, of, this, uh, of this section. Um, and last time we were here, we're not going to unpack all of it, but we said really what's being violated in this passage isn't really the Sabbath. Jesus isn't a lawbreaker. He's not going around intentionally breaking the Sabbath. These, a lot of these are Jewish regulations and extra biblical rules. I told the man, you can't pick up your mat and carry it from one place to another. That's violating the Sabbath. Well, according to the Old Testament, no, it's not. Um, Sabbath was, you see, from your regular activities in the sixth day. Um, the Jews had all these extra-biblical um, traditions tied to it. Um, but what's really interesting is that the discussion that comes is not about the nature of the Sabbath. What is work on the Sabbath? What isn't? That, that's not what the talk is about. It's rather on the nature of the person of Christ. So look at verse 16. It says, Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. At the very end of the verse, he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The idea is that this probably wasn't the only sign he did on the Sabbath. He's been, there's a pattern of his. He likes to, to poke the Jews in the eyes um, and do these things on, on the Sabbath. Um, why? Why would you do that, Jesus? It was in order to reveal something about his identity, his absolute equality with the Father. Look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my Father is working until now. I am working. Now, what does that mean? My father is working until now. Um, this was an important topic of discussion among Jewish rabbis, okay? So they, they, they asked the question, does God observe the Sabbath? And if he doesn't, then is he somehow exempt from the Sabbath law? Because certainly God can't be a lawbreaker. 
But if God does observe the Sabbath, then who controls the universe and orders his providence and makes sure things don't ensue into chaos every seventh day of the week, right? So that was the question. And the common consensus of the, of the day was that God indeed is always working. Old Testament affirms that. He never ceases from his activities of sustaining the universe and acting out his purposes of redemption and providence. And obviously, he's not a lawbreaker. And we're not going to go into all the points of how the rabbis try to uh, square those angles. Is he exempt from the law? Is he operate within the law of the Sabbath? Um, but the point is, is that God always works, and he's never guilty of violating the Sabbath. Now look again at verse 17. Jesus said, my father is working until now, and I am working. The Jews referred to God as our father or even father, but Jesus says, my father. That's a very intimate term. It's a very close term. Jews wouldn't have said that. My father, combined with what he's about to say, shows that he has some special relationship with God the Father. Jesus tells them the reason he does these things on the Sabbath is to make it crystal clear that he is equal with God. Just as the Father continually works out his purposes and is never guilty of violating the Sabbath, so the Son continually works out his purposes and never violates the Sabbath. That's the point. He's equal with God. D.A. Carson said, Jesus insists that whatever factors justify God's continuous work from creation also justify his. Andres Kostenberger also says, Jesus now adds that he too is working. He could have objected that the inaccurate Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament Sabbath command that prohibited work normally done on the six days of the week, these regulations, which referred to work, hardly applied to a man's picking up his mat, but rather than taking this approach, Jesus places his own activity on the Sabbath plainly on the same level as that of God the Creator. If God is above the Sabbath, then so is Jesus. That's the point Jesus is making. In other words, Jesus is the Son of God, and as the Son, he works on the same terms as the Father. Well, um, if the Jews are persecuting them in verse 16, now they really are. Look at verse 18. It says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Well, why? Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. That's why they wanted to put him to death. He called God his Father. He, he claimed equality with God. And for the Jews, that amounted to blasphemy. You don't make yourself equal with God. This comes up another uh, number of times. Flip over to chapter 10. You know, we got five minutes, so let's go quickly. Chapter 10, um, to show you how this resurfaces in John several times. This is one of the main um, accusations against Christ, why they wanted to put him to death. They believed he was blaspheming, claiming equality with the Father. Chapter 10, They picked up stones to throw at him, and Jesus answered, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which one are you going to stone me? Jesus answered him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. That's exactly what's going on in this passage. They say, You're just a man, and you claim equality with God. 
And the Old Testament is very clear. There's, God has no equal. Listen to Isaiah 40. To whom then will you liken God? What likeness will you compare with him? Verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. So God has no equal. The Jews are right. There's no equal with God. Leviticus 24 is very clear that death is the penalty for blasphemy, taking God's name in vain. So what's going on here? Did the Jews simply misunderstand Jesus? Did they think he was claiming equality with God and he really wasn't? Well, no, that's clearly not the case. We're going to see that. But if Jesus really did mean this, then how is it that Jesus is not guilty of blasphemy? How is that? There is one God. So you know Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is what? He is one. There's one God. The point of the Old Testament and the New Testament is that as the oneness of God, his uniqueness, there is no other God than him. Him alone, he is God. Stands alone, utterly unique from any other God uh, the world creates. But here comes Jesus claiming that he too works on the same terms of the Father and is equal with God. So how is this not blasphemy? The scripture teach, teaches that God is, is one, not two, not three. What's going on here? Of course, Jesus meant to imply equality with God. He is equal with God. And this was not blasphemy because it was not a denial of the oneness of God. And so what's going to follow in the, in the weeks ahead is perhaps one of the most important sections in the Gospel of John and maybe the entire scriptures on the nature of God and the person of Christ, of the Trinity. D.A. Carson said, again, may the, this coming passage we're going to see next week may be seen in part as a defense of a distinctly Christian form of monotheism, as much as an explanation of the nature of Jesus' equality with the Father. In other words, God exists as a unique being. He is one. There is one God, not two or three. That's what the word in the Old Testament meant. But when we come to the Gospel of John, we, we learn that this word one means something else as well. It's not just singularity. It's the idea of unity. If you say we are one as a body, what are we? doesn't mean there's not plurality. It means what? There is unity. And so John's going to show us, is, yes, there is one God, but also he is one in the sense of unity. He exists eternally as a father and as a son and as a spirit in perfect unity in which each person is absolutely equal with one another, and there is one God. We'll end by, by looking at uh, a few verses, but, but let me just emphasize something really quickly. Trinity is not an easy doctrine in the Bible, and often we um, like to push against it. We, 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 we recognize that, yeah, it's essential for, you know, to be orthodox and to be a Christian, but does the Trinity serve much purpose beyond that? Um, I think in, in Christianity, we tend to shy away from talking about God as triune and from really trying to understand what it means. We actually sometimes feel ashamed of this doctrine. You're talking with an unbeliever, and you bump into the Trinity, and man, it's just kind of—I don't really know how to explain it, and it's just kind of, kind of weird, and people are confused. And we certainly think the gospel is a lot cleaner and neater if we just talk about God. We don't talk about this Trinity thing. But what we're going to see in the weeks ahead 
is that that attitude is not just misguided, it's actually detrimental to the gospel. We have the gospel because God's a trinity. He's triune. That is massively, if God is not a trinity, if it's just singular God, one person, you have no gospel. It's massive. It's good news that God is a trinity, that he's triune. We're going to unpack that in the weeks ahead. It has massive implications on our daily lives, even. Um, it's really, really important. We are out of time. Flip over to John 17. I'll close with this passage here. Just to whet your appetite for what we're going to be talking about um, in the weeks ahead. Um, so we're going to be talking about the main mission and purpose of Christ. That's what this passage sets us up for. And we're also going to talk about his nature as the son. What does that mean? How can he be equal with God and not deny the oneness of God? Who is this man, Jesus Christ? Let's look at John 17. And um, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In other words, what we are going to be discussing in the weeks ahead is the foundation and the goal of your salvation. Without this, there is no gospel. And in fact, this is the goal of the gospel. What? That you would be caught up into the triune love of God. The intense love the Father has for His Son and the intense love the Son has for the Father is now incredibly lavished on you. And because of that, that's the foundation for the unity within the church. The unity of the Godhead is the unity, um, the reason for unity in the, in the church. So really the goal in the, in the weeks to come is that you would know the purpose and the mission of Christ, that you would know the nature of Christ, and that you would come to delight in and commune with the triune God. That you would hear in the gospel not just an invitation to be forgiven of your sin, but an invitation to enter into the very fellowship and communion between the members of the Trinity. It's astonishing <laughs> what, what the gospel of John holds out to us. How glorious the gospel is. And um, the very nature of God which makes it possible. So very, very rich passage indeed, um, what we're about to embark on. Um, so any questions, comments, um, before, we, before we end? I was just going to say, Michael, yes. I think the privilege, you know, you talked about feeding the 5,000, and how soon after that, he actually, the passage about denying yourself, yeah. kind of comes to the fourth month. It's like, the real privilege is actually imitating Christ in his suffering, yeah. not in lavishing ourselves mm -hmm. in this life. So it's really hard. It's like a, obviously a daily battle. But to think about with that life, it's like it's good. that's such a privilege. It is. And who are we to think that we would have a lavish life yeah. on earth when Jesus did? That's excellent. That's excellent. Yeah, that's a centerpiece of discipleship. And if we ever get to chapters 13 through 16, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see it. So um, Two years later. Yeah, right. Hope not. Hope we can make some progress. So. Great. All right, guys. Uh, we're a little over. Let me pray. Father, Lord, we... 
praise you. What an awesome God you are. Eternally, the Father and eternally begetting your Son. Happy communion within yourself through the Spirit. From that joy and that love that overflows into love on poor sinners by sending your Son to redeem us, to make us your adopted sons and daughters and our redeemed people of God. Father, we're so tempted to think life is about something beyond that. Life is about my troubles here and now, but, oh, Father, that we would be faithful to pursue holiness, to pursue bearing fruit for God, pursue unity in the body. That's why we're here, and pursue making the gospel crystal clear to the world around us. That's what we're here for, and we long for the return of Christ in the coming kingdom, uh, which will bring all of these new creation realities to pass. We love you. Prepare us for the service to come. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. Bless them. Fill them with delight and joy um, in your fellowship. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.